Greetings, and welcome to the Pad Verb Podcast. I am your host, KMO. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Sasha Altay. And we are going to be talking about skepticism, uh, particularly skepticism of the pronouncements of official institutions and media sources of information, aka the news. And we're also going to be talking about misperceptions about disinformation and misinformation. Now, let me ask you, before the conversation that you're about to hear, I just use those two terms interchangeably, but take a moment, introspect, interrogate your own personal lexicon. What's the difference in your mind between disinformation and misinformation? So if you came up with anything at all, make note of it. I'll say nothing more about that and leave it to this week's guest, Sasha Altay, who is a postdoctoral research fellow working on misinformation and mistrust. I'm reading now from his Reuters Institute bio. Uh, before coming to Oxford, Sasha completed a PhD in experimental psychology at the, and forgive my terrible French pronunciation, at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. Fascinated by apparently irrational beliefs, he tried to understand why, despite people's cognitive abilities to resist misinformation, some false beliefs are so widespread. Sasha also tested novel communication techniques to correct people's misperceptions and fight misinformation. He draws inspiration from theories in social psychology, media studies, and evolutionary psychology. So far, most of his work falls at the intersection of communication and reputation management. Sasha is a dedicated science communicator. He frequently gives talks to the general public and enjoys writing science popularization articles for journals or scientific blogs. For ethical and epistemic reasons, Sasha is a strong advocate of open source practices. His research has been published in academic journals such as Nature Human Behavior, New Media and Society, Digital Journalism, Evolution and Human Behavior, and Journal of Experimental Psychology Applied. Sasha holds a Bachelor in Sociology from the Paris Diderot University and a Master of Cognitive Science from the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. All right, so here's my conversation with Sasha Altay. Hey there, this is the Padverb Podcast live recording session. I'm the host, KMO, and I'm here with Dr. Sasha Altay. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. And not from memory, just uh, reading from your CV, you are currently a researcher for the Reuters Institute of Journalism. Is that right? Yeah. And you are researching disinformation. Yeah, I'd say misinformation. Misinformation. Yeah. Well, I'll just say that your your background is in cognitive science. Mm -hmm. And you have you are a, a postdoctoral practitioner of that art. And what is the difference between disinformation and misinformation? And uh, in the process, um, what do you bring to this observation as a cognitive scientist? Mm -hmm. So the difference is pretty simple, but it's also quite theoretical. It's just about intentionality. Disinformation is spread with the intention to harm others, while misinformation is not spread with the intention to harm others. The problem is that, in practice, it's very hard to infer people's intentionality based on what they shared online. So that's why researchers mostly use misinformation really as an umbrella term to mean anything that is false and that we are not so sure 
about the intent behind the sharing. So that's why researchers prefer to talk about misinformation rather than disinformation, just because, yeah, we never know whether people really intended to harm others. So which one is intended to do harm, dis or miss? Disinformation is intended to do harm, okay. and misinformation, there is no particular intent to do harm. Gotcha. So that's the, the key difference. They just got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, for instance, or wanted to have a laugh or anything else. So with disinformation and misinformation, I appreciate the difference that you've spelled out. I think most people use those terms interchangeably. But it still seems to be that there's a problem in that the person who creates the piece of information, you know, incorrect information, might have different motivations from the people who propagate it. Mm -hmm. You know, people share stories on social media or they pass information along via gossip and they don't necessarily have access to the intentionality of the person who either forwarded the story to them or the person who, who created it initially. So in this distinction, is there any room for adding nuance as to, you know, the, the difference between somebody creating a story and somebody just propagating it? Well, not exactly. At least it's not very clear from what I've read in the literature. By my understanding, we really focus on the sharer and the people who share the story because they are the one who give the story visibility. So even if a story is created to do harm, then if it's shared unintentionally or whatever, we will call it misinformation. So it's just from the point of view of the sharer, not from the point of view of the producers, especially because studying the producers is often very hard because for obvious reasons, many of them either don't want to say that they are producing false information or sometimes it's government or things like that and you cannot really study them. So you don't really have access to the intentionality of the, whoever it was that created the story, usually. Mm -hmm. and typically. For something to be misinformation, uh, sort of by definition, it has to be coming from a source other than a trusted institutional producer of news. Yeah, but sometimes if a reputable news outlet shares information that is false, it will often be misinformation. We can call it misinformation, but there is no problem with that. But often it will not be disinformation because they will not have spread the falsehood intentionally and not to harm other users. Okay. This is going to be a difficult conversation for me as an American to have, because I know that uh, part of your, you know, your responsibility mm -hmm. in, in the job that you do is also to examine the level of trust mm -hmm. that people have in traditional news institutions. Yeah. And that trust is waning, to say the least. Uh, before I yes. enter in with any of my own you know, observations and experience, let me just invite you to talk about uh, the issue of trust in information institutions. Mm -hmm. Well, the good thing is that trust in scientists in every country is pretty high and has remained pretty stable everywhere. So that's pretty good about scientists. But when it comes to the media, the news media, trust is very low in most countries, except Scandinavian countries like Sweden or Denmark, except in these places, less than half of the people say that they trust the news most of the time. And it's true even in countries like the UK, where they have like very good and reputable news outlets, such as the BBC. What do you think? Again, I'm going to hold back on my own, my own observations, because I'm afraid that could derail the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to keep it as neutral and, and theoretical <laughs> um, as possible up front. So let me just put a pin in the whole notion of trust in uh, media. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about bias and what's the word I'm looking for? Introspection. Mm -hmm. When we introspect and we look for our own bias, oftentimes we find nothing. Like if I'm just going to 
you know, close my eyes and direct my inner eye to just my interior life and say, where is my systemic bias? I'm aware of systemic bias, therefore I must be immune to them, right? But of course that's not the case, but I don't see it. Mm -hmm. You know, I can sort of take an outside observer's position and look at the various information sources that I go to time and again and maybe infer a bias from there, but it seems clinical and abstract and sort of uh, contrived. And it doesn't have the feeling of, you know, an introspectively arrived at truth. It, it just, it seems more theoretical. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, if you ask people if they're biased, they tend to say no. Uh, and if you ask people if other people are biased, they tend to say yes. And if you ask mm -hmm. them, you know, how swayed they are by propaganda, uh, they'll say, well, not very. And if you ask them, well, the people that you disagree with, you know, they take in sources of information that are different from yours. How swayed are they? And people tend to think that the people they disagree with are definitely very swayed by information sources. Yes. So I'll stop talking and let you carry on from there. Yeah, it's a very well-known phenomenon in, uh, in media studies and psychology. It's the third-person effect. Is basically all negative influence, such as yeah, being influenced by ads, being influenced by fake news, by propaganda, or whatever, we overestimate how much others are influenced by it. And there is also the opposite effect, actually, is that we think that things that are beneficial benefit us more than they benefit others. <laughs> so we, we, there is this kind of asymmetry. And it's particularly interesting in the case of misinformation because many people around the world are very worried about misinformation. In some countries, it's like one of the top priority. They say like false information is really bad, etc. And when you look at it, it's usually because people think that others are influenced by misinformation. And we had this whole thing in, after the 2016 US presidential election, after the Brexit, you have this new event that is very hard to explain, that is very complex. And one easy solution is to say, oh, that must be because of propaganda, because of fake news or because of misinformation. People are stupid, they have been brainwashed, and it helps to explain these very complex phenomena. It's just that, yeah, people who voted for Trump are just stupid. People who voted for Brexit are just stupid and got manipulated. And that's a very important part of my work is I'm very fascinated by yeah, how much people overestimate how gullible others are and how they use this to explain very complex social phenomena. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Russia or Russian sources buying Facebook advertisement space mm -hmm. for the 2016 presidential election. Mm -hmm. They spent roughly $200,000, which is a rounding error in terms of how much the official campaigns spent mm -hmm. on media of all kinds. So it's a minuscule amount of money. But I have spoken to people who sincerely believe with a passion that it was that $200,000 ad book or Facebook ad buy which swung the election. That, in fact, Vladimir Putin, just with $200,000, bought the presidency for Donald yeah, Trump yeah. and installed him there. Most political scientists would really laugh at this because <laughs> you have very big studies on the effect of campaign election in the US on voting turnout or on voting preferences. And all these studies, basically, they found that it has zero effect or that the effect is so small that it doesn't matter. And that's a very strong result in the literature, in political science. And in media studies, I think we are in an era of what is called minimal effects, with the idea that media in general, which is everything that is mass communication, has very little influence on people. 
for instance, what I'm saying right now will probably not persuade someone who disagrees with me. And, but something that can work is uh, interpersonal communication. So maybe if we disagree on something, I can convince you and maybe you can convince me. So interpersonal communication is when influence occurs, but mass media and mass communication usually has very weak effects. And when it matters, like for voting decisions or things like that, it's very, very hard to influence people. You know, I listened to your conversation with uh, Ricardo Lopez, mm -hmm. and it occurred to me listening to that, you are largely articulating things that I already believe, which is, is kind of dangerous. <laughs> you know, when you, you talk to somebody that you don't think you have any disagreements with, and you're just basically inviting them to say things that you already believe. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was wondering how deep we would have to dig in order to find a point of disagreement. But I'm not suggesting, you know, we devote any portion of this interview to that exercise. But <laughs> I'd like to talk about confirmation bias. Yeah. This is a natural thing that everybody does, even people who are aware of confirmation bias and, and take active steps to counteract it in their lives. They're still subject mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. It seems to me that, as you say, people aren't readily persuaded by much of anything. You know, they, they have beliefs. Mm -hmm. They tend to adopt new beliefs according to how well they fit with their existing beliefs. And when they're taking in new information, basically they're looking for something which is a better articulation of what they already believe than they can produce themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that they will share. You've written about social media sharing of misinformation and disinformation, and you say people, and I'm still, I don't have the difference memorized, it is disinformation, which is intentionally harmful. Yes. That, um, People are very reluctant to share disinformation on social media because they fear the reputational effects that it will have on them. Yes. I'm not sure how to formulate the question, so I'll, I apologize. It's going to be a very vague question, but I, I would invite mm -hmm. you to talk about people's protection of their reputation yes. in an environment where there are a lot of beliefs which have become de rigueur, you know, they're, they're required. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to express support for certain types of belief, even if you don't share them yourselves, or you need to be quiet about them in a strategic way, particularly in places like academia or in the tech sector. Mm -hmm. there, there are certain beliefs you're just expected to have and to voice support for. Mm -hmm. How does that affect people's behavior on social media? Yeah, I think on social media, signaling in the sense of just showing some who you are, basically doing some basic reputation management. Yes. Coalitional signaling. Yeah. But not only coalitional, you can also just be, oh, look, I'm nice, look, I'm competent, but also, as you say, look, I'm a good group member. And so I think this is a very important part of social media, but I think it's very intuitive. Like you go on LinkedIn and you see everyone showing off uh, their work success. You go on Instagram, you see people uh, showing off their body. You go, like, <laughs> it's, it's all about showing off something. And some of these things is about being nice, other being competent, other being hot, other being whatever. And one thing that we've added in the literature on misinformation is that we got puzzled by the fact that misinformation, because it's created with the intention to generate engagement and basically go viral, it can be very attractive. Like it can be about sex, it can be disgusting, it can be things that catch our attention and motivate us to share it. And it has been documented that misinformation is more surprising, is more novel, and have all these features that make them very interesting to our mind. But despite that, many, many studies have found that people don't share that much of it, actually. And even when you look at news, 
they, they share boring news from the New York Times or the BBC way more often than very extravagant news from a very unreliable news outlets. And one thing that we try to do to explain why it is the case is to show that actually when you share misinformation, people trust you less. And that's basically a mechanism by which people avoid altogether being exposed to misinformation. And it has been documented by many polls is that when people share false information on social media, usually you stop following them. You mute them or whatever, but people usually they avoid this kind of stuff. But this is just one part of reputation management. One part is I don't want people to think I'm stupid. But of course, on social media, when you share something, you can add context and you can share something that is false to make a joke. Like when you look at the most popular fake news on Facebook, they are often very funny or very like they are jokes about Florida, about Trump, about whatever. Basically, they are very funny or very disgusting or very sexual. And it's not clear exactly why people share them, but you can imagine that in certain contexts, it's appropriate because teenagers or whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah, signaling and reputation management, I think, is a very important aspect and important part to understand what people share on social media. But I think one difficulty is it's very hard to get into people's mind to know why and how they shared it. Like, you know, when we talk, there is a lot of pragmatic. Like, not all that we say is encrypted in the information. There is a lot of context. And the context is often missing. We don't know with whom they shared it. So this context is very hard to access. And I think it makes the study of misinformation on social media and the internet more broadly very, very tricky. I'm not sure if you have any interest in artificial intelligence and natural language processing, but the inferred information in most you know, verbal communication is vast. Mm -hmm. Yes. And getting you know, a language model to pick mm -hmm. up on what isn't said, you know, the important aspects yes. of a, a statement, which are not actually encoded in words in the statement, yes. is a huge problem. No, but that's why I'm quite pessimistic even about fake news detection. Like many engineers, and there's a whole branch of academia that is just focusing on every day there is a paper uh, with a new algorithm to detect misinformation or whatever. And I think it's doomed to fail because human communication is too rich to yet, I think, be analyzed just by looking at the text or just the image. Like, it's not enough. You need the context. And this context is very hard to access. And that's why I think many studies where we use big data algorithm and stuff, we need to do also a bit of qualitative analysis just to look at what happened or even like some ethnography to go in this group and see what they say. And many ethnographies have been done on QAnon or on Reddit and stuff like that. And I think it's very necessary to understand how people negotiate with the information they come across online. Because these relationships are very complex. Like people are not stupid. And so we should not, this should not be our premise that people are stupid and they do stupid things. That, that's not true. You know, there's a documentary on Netflix. It's a few years old now. I think it's called Behind the Curve. Yes. And it is about people who believe that the earth is flat. Yeah, I saw it. And it's, <laughs> I was watching that documentary mm -hmm. and there was a, a flat earth gathering and there was a man in the front row sitting with his feet pulled up onto the chair, you know, so that his knees are up in his face. And he's mm -hmm. listening to the speaker with rapt attention. And I mentioned this guy because I know him. I didn't know he was in the film until I watched it. But oh, wow. yeah, he's a busker. Uh, he's a street performer. Mm -hmm. So he lives in Boulder, Colorado. And there's a pedestrian mall, which is a tourist attraction. And he's there every day. And he has a prodigious memory, and he has memorized 
all of the zip codes in the United States. Right. So he gathers people from the crowd. He asks them what their zip code is, and then he tells them where they're from, which amazes them because there are thousands of zip codes. And then he tells them the name of a restaurant in their zip code, you know, not a chain restaurant, but a local restaurant, mm -hmm. and they recognize it and they're amazed. And then he has this very, very long rope. And he, he takes the rope and he draws the shape of the map of the United States on the pavement. And then he calls all the people that he's talked to, maybe 10 people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he remembers all their names. He remembers their zip codes. And he makes up a story and he places them on the map according to their zip code. You know, the, the map drawn in mm -hmm. rope on the, the pavement. And then he makes up a story that incorporates all of them and something about the zip code in which each of them lives. So it's this amazing mm -hmm. memory that he has. And, you know, he's not a savant. Uh, he's, you know, he's, his general intelligence is pretty much at that level across the board. But he's a flat earth believer. Mm -hmm. And before that, you know, he alienated a lot of his uh, professional connections by embracing the idea that the moon landings were faked. Mm -hmm. So he has a powerful psychological need to believe that there is a grand deception being mm -hmm. foisted upon most people. And he is one who sees through it. But he's very smart, yeah, yeah, a yeah. very smart guy. So, yeah, the idea that people who believe falsehoods are stupid, it's not only like a comforting prejudice to adopt, but it's just flat wrong, demonstrably wrong. Yes, yes. And one thing I don't really like, in, even in the scientific literature, is we use all these words that are very passive to characterize their behaviors. For instance, we say that they fall in the rabbit hole, that we look at who is susceptible to misinformation, and all these words are very passive. Like if they were just normal people on the internet, and oh, there is false information, or there is a conspiracy theory, or, and bam, the information attacked them or whatever. And I think this model is completely wrong. And these people are very active. When, when you look at ethnographies of people who believe in conspiracy theories, they are extremely active. They spend their days on the internet arguing, uh, doing research, and they, they are looking for it. They are looking for this particular information. The information doesn't come across them randomly and influence them randomly. They are looking for it. Yeah, I'm very much annoyed by all these passive words. <laughs> Let's stick with Flat Earth for a minute, because it's, it's pretty non-political and it's not on most mm -hmm. people's radar, but it is a belief system which was quite fringe until just recently and has experienced an enormous uptick in recent years. What is it about that belief system you think that is attractive to very intelligent people? I think it's a difficult question because I think that it's pretty intuitive that the Earth is flat. Like, you never see it really spheric or round, like, just from your own perception it's very hard to see that it's round or spheric. Even when you take the plane, it's, yeah. it's a little bit spheric, but very little. Like, uh, I think it's very hard to infer. You could even mistake it for just a warping effect of the, the glass yes. that you're looking through. Yeah, yeah. You have to get up into space to see the curvature of the Earth. Yeah, and that's why I think it's interesting is that people need to trust someone to overcome this first impression, basically. And I think one thing that characterizes people who believe in conspiracy theories and so flat earth in particular also is that they don't trust scientists, for instance, or the government. So basically they stick to their own perception and their own knowledge. And, but I think it could have been something very different than flat earth. I don't think the content of the belief really matters. I think what matters to them is to coordinate and group on something and this something happened to be flat earth but i think if we rerun our current world for a thousand times thousand simulations or whatever 
I think it would not be that Earth, even the majority of the time. It would be something else. People just, I think they are also looking for people like them who don't trust the government, who share the same psychological or social uh, situation. I think they just coordinate around this belief. I don't think the content really matters. And it's not clear to me to what extent they really believe it. I think to some extent they believe it. But what influence does it have on their inferences? Like, do their brain use this information to draw inferences? Like, not really. You know, even when our belief that the Earth is round or spheric, it's not a very consequential belief. So it's an unconsequential belief that people can use to coordinate. And so I don't think the content uh, really matters. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's really no prescription that the flat Earth entails. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing you can really do differently. No, no. <laughs> okay. So let's talk uh, the particulars of uh, U.S. political mania. <laughs> Joe Rogan is the most popular podcaster in the world. Mm -hmm. Spotify just paid him hundreds of millions of dollars to basically shut down his RSS feed and make his show a, you know, proprietary product that is only available via their platform. And to them, it's as if some, let's see, what's her name? Oh, I'm out of touch with the names of new pop stars, but the, um, we'll just pick one. This is probably wrong, but Ariana Grande is, or Grande mm -hmm. is a popular musician and for Spotify, from their perspective, it's if she released a new album every week. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, that's the numbers that his podcast get. And yet... Someone said Taylor Swift. Yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Slava. <laughs> She's not even that new an artist. I should know Taylor Swift. <laughs> anyway, so he's hugely popular. And yet, in left-wing or, you know, mainstream left social and political circles, he is forbidden territory in persona non grata. And in the corporate media... You know, his viewership numbers dwarf any, you know, mainstream political pundits mm -hmm. or any mainstream news personality, except possibly Tucker Carlson. But, you know, they are all, in terms of the number of people paying attention, utterly insignificant compared to Joe Rogan. And yet they enjoy the prestige of the recognition by, you know, official government agencies. You know, Joe Rogan doesn't get invited to White House press briefings. Uh, representatives from CNN and The Washington Post and The New York Times do even though their numbers are, are negligible compared to his. And so they are vociferous, I would say even rabid, in lying about him. So when he got COVID, you know, he went to a doctor. His doctor gave him a variety of, you know, therapeutic treatments. Mm -hmm. And one of them included ivermectin. And the mainstream news all reported Joe Rogan is taking horse medicine, you know, in response to COVID. Mm -hmm. Ivermectin is not only for, you know, veterinary care. It has been approved for use in humans for decades. You know, that is a well-established use for it. Mm -hmm. Not for COVID, because COVID is new, but, you know, for different types of parasitic infections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, CNN, for example, uh, Sanjay Gupta is their, their medical lead. And, you know, he reported that Joe Rogan was taking a horse dewormer. And Joe Rogan invited Sanjay Gupta onto his program and said, look, you know, I, this was prescribed to me by a doctor. It was not a veterinary product. This is a human pharmaceutical product that was prescribed to me by a doctor. And it was one of many things that I took. Why did you and your network insist, you know, that I'm making off-label use of veterinary products? And in the conversation with Joe Rogan, Sanjay Gupta had to admit, yeah, that was not fair play. But thereafter, the network itself doubled down on the story and said, absolutely not. We'll, you know, ignore Sanjay Gupta in, you know, human face-to-face -face interaction with this person. He's not human. He is a persona. He is the, you know, representative of a viewpoint that we despise. 
And we insist, yes, he did take horse dewormer, Mm -hmm. you know, for his COVID. What's going on there? Why would CNN take that stance and then double down on it once the person who had articulated it on behalf of CNN, you know, recanted? Yeah, I don't really have (laughs) an answer to that. Yeah, the mainstream media is not always great. Yeah, it's not always great. But I think the scientific community is not always great. When you look at the replicability crisis and there are problems with what I usually say is you need to look at the alternative. Like, what's the alternative to trust the scientists? It's really bad, basically. The mainstream media are not perfect, and some alternatives are better. Like the scientific community is better. But many alternatives to the mainstream media are worse than the mainstream media. Oh, certainly. <laughs> well, I think part of your work is examining you know, the failure of trust in the mainstream media and mainstream mm-hmm. institutions. Mm-hmm. So do you think that people should trust the mainstream news media? Yeah. <laughs> I used to say very provocatively that if people believed everything, for instance, the BBC said, we would be better off. (laughs) And that's provocative. But that's what I want to get at is that I think people reject a lot of it. People are very skeptical of anything that does not align with their prior beliefs and their worldviews. And so I think people are excessively skeptical. And if they were less skeptical, by, of course, if they would trust scientists, it would be better. And they, they do trust scientists, but sometimes it's hard to access the scientific evidence and exactly what people think. Like two days ago, there was this association on Twitter, pre-GMO California, <laughs> telling me that there is a scientific consensus that GMOs are bad for human health. Hmm. And I was like, no. And they were like, yes. And they sent me like seven papers or whatever saying <laughs> that uh, there is a consensus. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, like, I don't have time for this. Just do your homework and uh, trust, trust the science. <laughs> oh, that's the worst thing to say, though. One, do your own research. Yeah, I was bored. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, the admonition, do your own research, is the response that people who have presented false information or unsubstantiated information reflexively give when somebody calls yeah. them out. So, you know, I would never allow myself to utter that phrase, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if it's what I meant, I would look for some other way to say it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I would think that we would be better off if people trusted the mainstream media. I don't think it's true in every country. I think in France, for instance, or in the UK, where they have a strong public broadcast service so in Germany, too. I think the quality of the mainstream media is very good. In the US, it's less the case, <laughs> even though mo- most of them are fine. Like, even Fox, like Fox is terrible in many ways. But they are not like complete junk, like not all that they write is wrong. And even fake news outlets such as Breitbart, most of what they share, like half of what they share is true. Like it's not like 100% of what they share is false. Well, what I've discovered is that people, you know, who consider themselves to be either Democrat Party partisans or mildly to the left, not far left, because, you know, the mainstream left hates the far left and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But people who are mainstream left, they tend to have very passionate opinions about media that they don't consume. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you said that uh, not everything on Breitbart is false, Mm -hmm. I don't read Breitbart regularly, but when I do check in on Breitbart, they seem to be very cautious in terms of what it is they say in the editorial voice of their organization. They're not, you know, blatantly spreading falsehoods. What I've noticed is that Breitbart's stories tend to be very short, very superficial, and all they're really doing is pointing their audience at a particular subject, and then the real action takes place in the comment thread that follows the story. 
So Breitbart stories only tend to be a couple of paragraphs. They, they're not detailed. They're not you know, weaving this complicated narrative. They're basically just pointing their viewers you know, in a particular direction and then letting the viewers drive each other crazy you know, or <laughs> basically engage in this sort of one-upmanship of yeah. connecting the conspiratorial dots. You know? So the craziness on Breitbart is all in the comments. Mm, interesting. And that's, I forget the name of the person who started it. He's dead now. But that was his intention from the beginning, was that he would invite the crazies in. Of course, he didn't call them crazies, but you know, he would invite the crazies in, but he wasn't going to articulate their craziness for them. Mm -hmm. They could do it themselves. He was just providing a forum for a community mm -hmm. for you know, people of a right-wing conspiratorial bent. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been amazingly successful. But you know, I, I've talked to so many people who think that Joe Rogan is the worst, and they've never listened to him. Whereas I don't listen to him religiously or anything. I don't have the time. You know, he does a three-hour show every day. Mm. But the episodes of him that I have heard, he's humble. He's thoughtful. He's, he's not thoroughly skeptical, but he's, you know, reasonably skeptical. You know, from a, somebody without any philosophical training and, you know, probably would have trouble defining the word epistemology, he's, uh, he's got pretty decent epistemological hygiene. And he's willing to admit when he's wrong. It's something which is very rare in the media sphere because people stake out a position and, you know, their public reputation is associated with the position that they've staked out. Whereas Joe Rogan is willing to say, look, I'm an idiot. I don't know. I bring people in. I talk to them. I listen to them. Maybe I should challenge them in places where I don't think to. But, you know, I'm, I'm just exploring like anybody else. So that sort of humility, you know, to me, that defines the man. And it is nowhere present in the conception of the, you know, the people who have been told to hate him and who dutifully hate him. Mm. For more than two minutes. <laughs> you don't know those people? <laughs> no, but I've never listened to Joe Rogan. I just know that people in my field don't view him very positively and believe that he has spread misinformation on things like the COVID-19 vaccines. And, uh, but again, I've never, I've never listened to him. So I don't have a strong opinion. I just, yeah. But his reputation is not great in my field. I would be willing to bet, though, that the people who have reported these negative judgments haven't listened to him either. Yeah. Or if they have, they have listened to carefully curated collages of things that he said. I've watched a lot of those. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if you do a three-hour show every day, which is unscripted, and you're talking to a variety of people, if mm -hmm. somebody hates you and they've got the time and the determination, they can comb through hundreds of hours of things that you've said and cobble together a collage of sound bites, which make you sound like, you know, a monster. Yeah. There are many such bias-confirming pieces, you know, collages on YouTube. If you want to hate Joe Rogan, you can go imbibe a few of those and you'll have lots of ammunition for hating him. But it's, to me, to form an opinion mm -hmm. of somebody based on a presentation of them by somebody who you know hates them, uh, <laughs> that's not good epistemological hygiene. But to be fair, on this, I trust people in my field and my priors are still that he may not be very reliable. Even if I didn't listen to him, I just know people in my field feel like. Well, that is absolutely fascinating to me because you don't listen <laughs> to Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. You have heard a report about him from people that you probably realize haven't actually listened to him either. And yet you are going to stand by it. Is that for reputational purposes? Why would you be invested in that opinion? No, it's just. I don't have a strong opinion about it. It's just you seem to be pretty in favor of him and pretty, you seem to like him. I know people in my field and my Twitter network, for instance, that I've created to basically have people I trust. And these people I trust, they don't trust him. So I don't trust him. <laughs> well, let's take it out of the contemporary setting. Ayn Rand, 
you know, author of Atlas Shrugged, a book I've never read, although, you know, I know people who swear by it. Mm -hmm. She really despised, I think it was Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. And so her followers despise Immanuel Kant, even though most of them have never read any Kant. And they wouldn't read any Kant because Ayn Rand has already warned them off of him. Mm -hmm. This is something I encountered like in the 80s and 90s. I don't encounter it anymore. It's not a current topic. But, you know, even at the time, and this was before I had studied much philosophy, it just seemed obvious to me that you can't form an opinion on something based solely on the reports of somebody who is hostile to it. That that's just not fair play. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. But why would my whole Twitter network want to be hostile to him? Like, and why would mainstream media, you know, want to be hostile to him? Like, there must be a reason. Maybe it's because all my network is leftist and he's more on the right. He's not. He's not on the right. That's another misconception. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no idea. My prayers are weak, and I updated my prayers based on what you said. Maybe I, I see him in a slightly more positive <laughs> way, but I trust my network. Yeah, but why? Why do you trust your network? I mean, do you believe that the people who are reporting negative opinions about Joe Rogan have listened to Joe Rogan long enough to have a valid opinion on the topic? I don't know. I don't know. My network is a network of people that I think are smart and get it right on many things like nuclear energy, uh, GMOs, and they, they get it right on many things, mm -hmm. uh, on COVID vaccine, on the face mask or whatever. Like My network get it right on this. And so I believe they also get it right on Joe Rogan. But again, my priors are weak. Like I don't have a very strong opinion about it. Like If we have a one-hour chat about Joe Rogan and I listen to him or whatever, maybe I can change my mind a bit, but I, I don't have strong priors. <laughs> right. So you trust your network. Yes. But in this instance, do you have any reason to trust your network other than you think that trusting them in general leads to better results than selectively questioning the wisdom of that tribe? It's just that I know that people at my institute, at the Reuters Institute, they do work on the media, podcast and stuff. And I know that, for instance, <laughs> the husband of one of my colleagues uh, listened to it, so she listened to it. So I know that some of them have listened to it and they had passionate discussion about it. And they don't trust him. So, like I said, like, my brothers are weak. I just know that he's not very well seen in my network. Right. And it's, not an, it's not a random network. Like. What you're saying to me, what I'm hearing is that in your network, yes. voicing support for Joe Rogan would cause you, you know, not necessarily harm, but at least unwanted friction and difficulties that you would have to account for yourself in a way that if you had said something which was largely accepted by your tribe, you wouldn't be challenged on. Yes, but when I believe in these things, I voice them out. Like, for instance, many of them come from the social sciences. I come from the cognitive sciences. And in my lab, we studied evolutionary psychology. So I have more, I have stronger opinions about how biology and genes influence our behaviors. And some of them, for instance, I think, often think that genes and biology has a weaker effect on our behaviors than I do. But I often voice my concerns about that and say, oh, you know, biology is very important <laughs> because I know the scientific evidence behind it. And if I listen to Joe Rogan and ended up thinking that he's great, I would probably do it too. <laughs> it's just that because I don't care about him and I'm not listening to him, why would I voice this out? <laughs> right. I can totally understand you don't listen to him. You don't have strong priors on it. It's not a topic that you would really voice an opinion on. The thing that strikes me as suspect is when you say, I trust my community in their judgment mm -hmm. about him. Mm -hmm. I don't see that you have any reason to trust your community's judgment about him on this issue, given that typically in the sciences, people do tend to be lean more to the left. And if you say something positive about Joe Rogan in such circles, you're going to get hassled. 
you know, the no hassle approach is to either repeat the negative judgments about him, which are current in your community, or to just stay silent on the topic. Yeah, no, they may be wrong. They may be wrong. Anyway, I had no intention of, of <laughs> devoting this much time to Joe Rogan, so we will not utter his name again in this conversation. Well, your work is officially targeted at misinformation. What are some of the misconceptions that you've encountered that people hold about that topic? So one of them, and I think it's maybe the most important one, is that people think there is a lot of it. People think there is a lot of misinformation out there, and there's still a debate in the scientific literature, so don't take my word for it. But from my point of view, a lot of studies have been published in the best journals showing that misinformation defined as information that is not only false, but also of low quality in general. For instance, anything that would come from Breitbart would be considered misinformation in these studies. And maybe not even most of what's coming out of Breitbart is misinformation, but they would classify everything from Breitbart as misinformation. And what these studies find is that misinformation represents overall less than 5% of the news that people consume. And I'm talking about news. But when you look at overall media information diet, like all the information that people consume, then it's less than 1%. And what's interesting is that you have a very small minority of people who consume most of it, who consume most of the misinformation that is out there, and they have strong motivations to find this misinformation, but also to believe it and say that they believe it for coalitional reason. For many reasons, you have a very small minority of people. And what's, I think, interesting is that these people they may drive our misconceptions that there is a lot out there because they are very active. So we see them a lot. They are very loud. They are in the comment sections. Basically, they are everywhere, but they are very small. And so they are overrepresented on the internet. And that's why I think we overestimate how much misinformation there is out there. Another misconception <laughs> is that misinformation has a strong impact on people's behavior. And we have already touched on that. And it's more, I think it's a broader misconception that information has a lot of influence on our behavior or even on our belief. And for instance, a lot of bad studies in social psychology about priming, for instance, when you say a word, when you read words related to old people, like old things like that, then you will walk slowly or like, you know, this whole idea of priming is based on the idea that information has a strong influence on our behaviors. And I think it's something that's kind of counterintuitive. We overestimate how much people are influenced by false information, but we don't believe that it has such a strong influence. Anyways, all that to say that another misconception is that it has a strong influence. And I think overall, it has a, only a weak and indirect influence. For instance, the model in media studies today, they are basically based on a two-step flow model where you have the mass media and in between the mass media and the people, you have people like you or influencers and small influencers in particular who will re relay messages to people and that's when influence occurs, is when you have some people who talk to each other or some local influencers who talk to people. That's when you have some influence. But usually influence is very hard to achieve. Otherwise, it would be easy to raise kids. It would be easy <laughs> to go through a pandemic. It would be easy to do so many things. Like if influence was that easy, like the world would be so much easier. But unfortunately, it's not. And people are very stubborn. 
and it's very hard to convince them. And that's what I, I focus on is because in the literature and misinformation, people think people are stupid and too easily influenced. And my whole take is to say, uh, I think people are not stupid, but they are too skeptical and they are too stubborn and it's very hard to change their mind. Well, I mentioned early on that I would be curious to find a place where we disagreed, and I think it's yes. probably on the topic of skepticism. Mm -hmm. You think that people would be better off or society would be better off if everybody believed, you know, whatever the editorial board at the BBC decided mm -hmm. was true. Is that for social cohesion purposes, or do you think that the actual people moving through the world would have a more accurate view of the world than they would get if they were to strike out on their own and, you know, sort through the mad tangle of, you know, different claims and narratives and stories that are available to them on the internet and other places? Oh, I think they would definitely have more accurate beliefs, notably because many people just don't listen to the news media at all. Many people are just news avoiders and they don't listen to the news at all. And today I was working by the Thames uh, in Oxford and I was listening to a BBC podcast and they are great. Like some of them are, are very informative, and, but few people listen to them. Not that few, like they are still listened, but not enough people, I think. It's fine if people don't want to listen to it. Like I'm not saying everyone should be informed or whatever. Like it's fine if people don't want to be informed. But I think if we want to improve the information ecosystem and how much people have true beliefs, then yeah, I think turning to the BBC or the New York Times is great. <laughs> and when I'm saying they are too skeptical, it's also like in the literature, in cognitive science, when you have many tasks that are called advice taking. So for instance, you are being asked to evaluate the distance between two cities, like Paris and London. And then you say, oh, 300 kilometers. And then you're being told, Frank estimated 360 kilometers. Do you want to update your estimate? And basically, most people don't really update their estimates, or they value their own estimates more than the estimates of someone else. Is Frank a known person or is he a hypothetical person? No, it's a hypothetical. But in the experiment, you say, yeah, it's a previous participant. He's just like you, basically. He also took the task and he estimated this. And basically, most people don't use the advice at all. And basically, they value their own estimates more than others. And it's something very broad that we find in many experimental tasks. Even when you are paid, even when you need to be accurate, people still stick to their estimates, even if often they would be better off just taking into account the other estimate as much as their own estimate. And that's something that egocentric discounting is the fact that we put more value on our own beliefs, intuitions, knowledge, or whatever than on others. Because we are like, who is this friend? Like, look at me, like, look who I am. Why would I listen to him? And actually, most people would be better off listening to Frank more often. <laughs> Frank, who doesn't exist. No. <laughs> People would be better off if they listened to hypothetical Frank. Well, so my question was, should people believe, you know, what the BBC tells them? And let me say that I agree. The BBC puts out some excellent podcasts, absolutely excellent stuff. They have one called The Long Read, where, you know, they just get a professional voice actor to come in and read a very long, very substantial, well-written think piece or article. Excellent, excellent stuff. The things I don't much care for, you know, that the BBC puts out are it's the sort of thing that used to come over my uh, Amazon Echo in the morning. Do you know what that device is, the Echo? No, you can talk to it like it's a voice. Yes, I'm avoiding saying the name that you just said, because even though I've turned off the one here in this room so that she won't <laughs> respond, I have one in the other room that might respond if I say that name aloud. But every morning, 
until a couple of years ago, I would start my day. I mean, I'd walk out of the bedroom and I would say, Alexa, flash briefing. And it would play for me in this order, BBC headline news, NPR headline news, and Al Jazeera headline news. And then Al Jazeera stopped updating the feed. So then it was just BBC and NPR. And uh, NPR is sort of the American equivalent of BBC, not as prominent. But over the course of the Trump presidency, Mm -hmm. NPR just lost its mind. They became monomaniacal. There was only one topic, and it was Trump is evil. That was the only thing they would ever yeah, talk yeah. about. So, you know, and, and this was really insidious. The flash briefing, you know, the thing that they provide to, to Amazon to go out over the Echo devices, it's not archived anywhere. And I started to notice that they would say things which were very provocative and very unsubstantiated on the flash briefing that you couldn't find archived on their website. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you know, I had a choice. I could just remove everything except BBC from the flash briefing, or I could just stop asking for it. Mm -hmm. And I stopped asking for it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I am news avoidant, as you say. I hadn't heard that phrase before, but yeah, it it describes me. But I'm a lifelong, you know, voracious consumer of news content. And now I find almost all of it, not just useless, but worse than useless, Mm -hmm. you know, predatory. And I find it divisive, like intentionally divisive. So I avoid it. But I have recently moved from very liberal Vermont to very conservative Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And I live in the same house with my mother. And she has the TV on all day. Mm -hmm. And when I walk through one of the rooms that she has a TV on, and she has a TV on in the living room and the kitchen, and it's always tuned to uh, CBS, which is one of the major, you know, Mm -hmm. over-the-air broadcasting networks. And so I can't help but hear a fair amount of their so-called news coverage. I wouldn't describe it as wrong. I would describe it as utterly vacuous, that they just have mastered the art of filling airtime with talking voices that don't say anything at all. Like, if you're interested in a particular topic, you can go to YouTube an hour, you will take in more information on that topic than you would, you know, in months and months and months of listening to CBS News. Yeah. It's just astounding to me. I don't think they are better or worse than any of the other mainstream outlets. The thing that I guess is notable about them is that they are over the air. Mm -hmm. So they are available to older people who have no willingness whatsoever to mess with the internet. Mm -hmm. So they just turn on their TV like they've done for 40 years and it's the same process. And, you know, the network programmers understand this, but even the one thing where they really had a strong... I wouldn't say their content was substantial, but you know, in the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine, they were beating the war drums. Even before Russia invaded, they were really pushing that the United States needed to confront Russia militarily. And you know, being 54, I had to silence myself because I almost said the Soviet Union, which hasn't existed in 30 years. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, in my field, there are few studies on television news, even though in the US, we know that it's still a major source of news. For older people. For everyone, because when you look at the population in general, it's mostly old people who consume news. Like Mm -hmm. Young people consume very few news, and you have like a very general trend where older people are the heaviest news consumer. And since they consume most of their news on TV, when you look at the general population in the US, most of the news consumption still comes from TV. And But we don't really know how much misinformation there is TV, because it's very hard to transcripts. It, basically, it's easier to do text analysis on social media like Twitter or Facebook. 
and look at the articles that news outlets have published on the internet or in print. But television is trickier because images are very hard to analyze still. Are you and your colleagues using a lot of machine learning and algorithms to comb through large data sets? No, not really. We use algorithms to scrap data from social media, but they are very basic. Like It's nothing complex. So no, I don't use machine learning or artificial intelligence. Okay. I was just wondering about that because machines are much better with text than they are with images. Oh, yeah. they're, they're getting much better with images, but still it is a weak point for them. Yes. Okay. And videos, uh, they have to cut videos in small images to analyze it. Very hard. <laughs> but you probably don't have access to the same tools that Google has, but you know Google owns YouTube and their AI has gotten very, very good at discerning the content of a video, even if information about mm. the content is not in the description or in the title. They're very good about I know many people who work for Jigsaw. I think it's one of the company owned by Google to study YouTube, basically. And they work with many researchers on misinformation. And they are testing interventions against misinformation and stuff. So there, is, there are active collaborations. From what I've heard, it's not easy, even legally, <laughs> because often you will have lawyers from YouTube almost attacking them. So anyways, I think it's a very complex relationship, but there is one. And I think it's uh, fruitful. What do you hear in general from your contacts, you know, in that profession that's relevant to your field? What, what do you mean? Well, you've talked to people who work for Jigsaw. Yeah. And I imagine that you're talking about them, about topics that are of interest to you, that they have something to say, you know, that their experience gives them special insight into those topics, you know, things we've been talking about, disinformation, misinformation, trust in institutions. Is there anything sort of general that you've heard repeatedly from people in that field that is relevant to what we've been talking about, other than it's hard? <laughs> One problem is they are testing a lot of things, but we don't have access to the data. So one big thing that comes is that we don't have enough access to the data of uh, social media companies. But I'm quite puzzled, by actually, but like it's a very, there is a consensus that we need more access and that we don't have enough access to really understand what's going on. But social media are not the only one with interesting information, like uh, internet access providers. They have so much information that we would be interested in. Like many, many companies, different private companies have information that would be very useful for us. But for some reason, we focus on social media, even though many other companies uh, would help us uh, fight misinformation and other topics that may be more important. But yeah, the number one concern right now in, is my, in my field is access to social media data. So this is for my benefit, but also for the benefit of the listeners, because again, I think people typically use disinformation and misinformation interchangeably. Disinformation is the intentionally harmful stuff, and misinformation is just wrong. It's just factually mistaken, but with no ill intent. Is that right? Yes, or misleading. Usually it's not only false, but it can also be misleading. But then how do you define misleading? It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's either too broad or too narrow. So actually, it's very, it's very difficult. Well, there is certainly infinite room, really, for unintentional misleading. You know, you don't know what other people assume. You don't know what general knowledge they have. You don't know what they're going to bring to your utterances. So it's very easy to say something that unintentionally leads people astray. But I think there's quite a bit of intentional misleading using all true statements. And this is a sort of legalistic or propagandistic art, really, mm -hmm. is to direct people to a false conclusion with true statements. 
Yes. But it's being studied, like uh, partisan coverage, like for instance, the selective reporting of facts that are beneficial to one political side and the silencing of political facts that are not beneficial to one side, etc. Like it's being studied by political scientists. And I think it's very interesting because it's way more prominent than misinformation. Like uh, many media do that because many media are political or have at least a political orientation. So many of them do that. But that's also why people usually in ecosystem like the US, they don't just listen to one news outlet. They try to have uh, more like diverse news media. Well, I think a lot of people get most of their news from social media, mm-hmm. which means it's, it's being filtered for them you know, by relevance to their interests, mm-hmm. uh, which creates the filter bubble. You know, you're basically being fed more of what you have consumed in the past because the platforms are algorithmically curated to keep you engaged. And the way to keep you engaged is to either get you mad at somebody or to send you down a conspiratorial rabbit hole about something mm-hmm. or, you know, just to uh, show you more of what you lingered on in the past. Mm-hmm. But I think today the consensus on filter bubbles and echo chambers is pretty clear. It's not more prominent online than offline. And that actually most people online are not in echo chambers or future bubbles. And they find that when looking at only one platform or when only looking at news. So when you add more platforms or more kinds of news consumption, you would even have probably a more heterogeneous news consumption and exposure to diverse view. And I think it's pretty intuitive that when you go, for instance, in the comment section on YouTube or whatever, you have people who disagree with you. And people are exposed all the time online to contradictory opinions. And in real life, offline, that's when you have someone, a good friend of yours, but you disagree on something, like he's against nuclear energy, but you don't really want to talk about it because he's your friend and you just play basketball together or whatever, (laughs) you're not going to bring that up. And it's something that is very well documented. And centuries of sociologists have shown that. It's just homophily. It's just the fact that you are friends with people who are like you and you try to avoid topic on which you disagree because you want to keep all friendships, basically. You know, I know from your bio that prepared for me that uh, you play basketball. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how hypothetical or, or actually autobiographical the example of somebody that you know who doesn't like nuclear energy that you play <laughs> basketball with and you want to stay on good terms with. Uh, <laughs> how hypothetical was that example? You don't have to answer. Not very hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. No, but I have many friends who might disagree with. On, like People in France, for instance, they are very leftists. So leftist people in France, they usually are against GMOs. They are against nuclear power. They are un- even environmentalist in France. They are against that. So I disagree with them. When I don't know them, I will bring that up and have you. But when they are my friends, I can try to convince them, but I will not like, be annoying with it. Usually I just try to avoid it. When they're your friends, you try to convince them of what? That nuclear power is great or that GMOs aren't as bad as they think. <laughs> so the people choosing their scientific beliefs in accordance with their political beliefs is, as far as I can tell, universal. Yeah. The same, you know, the same groupings occur here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So people who you know, tend to vote for Democratic candidates tend to think that genetically modified organisms are inherently harmful and mm-hmm. that nuclear power is one of the most dangerous forms of generating electricity, when in fact, you know, the opposite mm-hmm. is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to wind generation, it's many more people are killed uh, falling off of, you know, wind turbines than are killed at nuclear power plant accidents. Oh, wind is still safe. It's not like, or even... Oh, I'm, I'm not demonizing wind at all. Yeah. 
it's not a killer. It's just that nuclear power is absurdly safe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like people who are afraid of flying. Uh, you know, you're in much more danger in the car going to the airport than you are once you get in the plane. Of course. And, and it's extremely efficient. And it's something we need together with renewables because it's not intermittent. So we, we need nuclear. Well, I've kept you for a good long time, so we'll wrap it up. But let me invite you to come up with a concluding statement, either summarizing what you think people should take away from this conversation or, you know, I won't structure it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever closing statement you'd like to make. I think we should not believe that other people are stupid. Be kinder to other people and take their opinion in consideration more than we do. And I think often we underestimate how accurate the news is because many of us just avoid it. And so maybe tuning in sometimes to the BBC or even for a podcast or stuff like that, I think can, can help us be more informed. Well, I agree with most of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Take care. That was Sasha Alte. And before I begin my concluding remarks, let me tell you just a few uh, how the sausage is made facts, not facts, I guess best practices around podcasting. And I would say uh, interview-based journalism in general. I have a personal practice of never continuing a debate with somebody once they have left the stage, which is to say not using my position here as the person recording you know, these concluding remarks to make new arguments or to get in new shots against somebody who is not present to defend themselves or their point of view. I have this personal practice because that has been done to me repeatedly when I've been a guest on other programs and I don't like it. So rather than complain about it, I just make a practice of never doing it to other people. Clearly, there are places where I disagree with Sasha Alte. I am not going to dwell on those disagreements here in my closing remarks. I've been podcasting since 2006, and for most of that time, it has been a one-man operation. I'm the producer, I'm the one, you know, booking the interviews, arranging them, doing the research, all the research, you know, for myself to prepare for the interviews. I conduct the interviews, and then I'm the editor as well. And when you edit a podcast, when you edit a conversation between two people, sometimes you're not cutting out any content at all. You know, just the little false starts or places where there's a, an uncomfortably long pause, which is really just an effect of the, you know, the telecommunication medium that you're using because you're not talking to somebody face-to-face. -face. Sometimes there are delays, which you shorten. Uh, and sometimes there are portions of a conversation which the guest would like to be off the record, or uh, maybe there was a segue to something which is not really related to what you want to focus on. But editing a conversation, a recorded conversation, involves a lot of rewinding, you know, a lot of going back and listening to something that you've heard multiple times before. So by the time you get to the end of a tight edit, you really know the content. <laughs> you really know the content of that conversation. Here on the Padverb Podcast, I'm the host, but I'm not the editor. So I don't get that, you know, that really close-up familiarity with the conversation that I would if I were editing it myself. So what happens is I'll record a conversation, and then it's, it's over. You know, I move on to preparing for the next one. But then a couple weeks later... I get an MP3 file of the edited conversation and I listen to it again and I'm amazed at how much it seems like I'm hearing it for the first time. Even though my voice is in the recording, I was clearly a party to the conversation. I don't know what's coming next. And 
I see things that just weren't clear to me, you know, things just pop out that I, I totally missed. So, for example, in this conversation, uh, I mentioned that uh, Breitbart News, you know, most people associated, I think, with Steve Bannon, but Steve Bannon didn't start it. He took over after the founder's death, and I couldn't remember the name of the founder. Well, duh, the founder's name is Breitbart. <laughs> That's why it's Breitbart News. And if I had realized that, I probably could have fished Andrew, the first name, out of my memory. Andrew Breitbart created Breitbart News. Uh, another thing I, I realized in listening to something that I was explaining to Sasha, um, really it was bad behavior by NPR, which caused me to stop listening to BBC headline news. BBC certainly has its, you know, its own editorial perspective, uh, which I don't necessarily always agree with, but it never got so bad that I was like, Ugh, I'm done with these people. It got so bad that I said, I'm done with NPR. And I was getting NPR and BBC in the same container, basically. So NPR, uh, I, I don't know if there's any, you know, reeling it back in and, and reforming your organization so that it is intellectually respectable again. But just know you're, you're harming more than your own reputation. Okay, now, in closing, I want to talk about skepticism. Sasha said that people are too skeptical of the information that is disseminated by respectable, trustworthy news institutions. He didn't say it exactly that way, but I think that is a fair paraphrase of his position. My reflexive response to that is to say, no, skepticism is good. You should be skeptical. But what does that mean to be skeptical? Well, to practice skepticism basically is to challenge the truth of anything, any statement. Just, you know, don't believe it. Look for either corroborating evidence or, more importantly, disconfirming evidence of any statement. But is that really, is that really a helpful way to go through life? Now, you may say yes, and you may have your reasons for that. In my closing remarks here, I'm going to explore the case for the opposite position, that we are too skeptical, reflexively too skeptical, and that the harms of reflexive, habitual skepticism outweigh the benefits. Trusted authorities or, you know, institutions which used to enjoy much higher trust than they do now, particularly government and uh, mainstream media organizations, they have lied to you. There's no denying it. They have lied to you. But that doesn't mean that everything they say is a lie. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be better off if you assume from the get-go that everything they say is a lie. Even the worst liars and even the, the most habitual liars are telling the truth most of the time. You, you pretty much have to just to get around in the world. If it's Tuesday, even a pathological liar isn't going to tell you it's Thursday, you know, except in very extreme, unlikely circumstances. And as I mentioned in the conversation with Sasha Alte, misleading statements, you know, misleading somebody, leading them to a false conclusion is most effectively done using true statements, but withholding information selectively or presenting information in a particular order so as to use true statements to direct the listener to a false conclusion. And he says that most people would be better off. They would have a more accurate picture of the world if they just believed everything that the BBC told them. And while, you know, to the rebellious part of my soul, that is an offensive statement, it's not necessarily wrong. Skepticism by itself doesn't lead you to the truth. Just distrusting authority doesn't give you any special insight into what the actual truth of the matter is. 
And in fact, if you reflexively assume that the opposite of what authority figures are telling you is true is the, the real truth, then in all likelihood, you are going to be led astray. Skepticism, effective skepticism, what I would call epistemological hygiene, is a learned skill. And it is not easy to learn. And to really be good at it, you have to also understand cognitive biases to which you yourself are subject. And you have to understand that you can't just introspect and find your biases and neutralize them. Your brain doesn't work that way. So if you just assume that you're being lied to, and then you go out into the world and you compare different stories about it, and you just choose the one that best fits your existing belief system, you would be better off just believing everything the BBC tells you. Now, I can't say that about NPR because NPR just doesn't have the breadth of coverage. Like, I would listen to, you know, my morning flash briefing, and BBC is up first, and I would hear stories that take place in Africa and Europe and parts of Asia that you don't normally hear about, you know, in, in U.S. news, places like Sri Lanka, you know, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea. The NPR headline news is all about the United States. It is, it is very rare to hear anything about other countries in the headline news on NPR, you know, unless, like recently, Nancy Pelosi just went to uh, Taiwan. Of course, that's, that's dominating the news cycle here in the U.S., but that's not so much a story about Taiwan. That's a story about the United States and the high tensions that we're experiencing in our relationship with China, the People's Republic of China. Now, in conclusion, I want to talk about, this is a very American psychological trait, but I know it's not strictly American. Other cultures share it as well. I want to share something that was written by science fiction author David Brin. Now, this is from his blog, and it's many years old. This is not a new idea for David Brin. He writes, It can be hard to notice things you take for granted. Assumptions that are never questioned, because everyone shares them. One of these nearly ubiquitous themes is a tendency for most authors and or filmmakers to disdain the intelligence and wisdom of society as a whole, portraying a majority of their fellow citizens as sheep or fools. Should this be surprising? The Euro-American fable has always featured an individualistic style. When the public pays for a fantasy experience, riding the shoulder of some bold hero or heroine, each customer wants to identify with a protagonist who is special, unique, or at least interesting in some way that departs from the run-of-the-mill batch-processed humanity. Even when the character seems unremarkable, he or she is marked as singular and fascinating by virtue of being one whose thoughts and experiences we share. That's the magic of point of view. While individuals get our empathy and sympathy, institutions seldom do. The we're-in-this-together spirit of films from the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s later gave way to a reflex shared by left and right that villainy is associated with organization. Even when they aren't portrayed as evil, bureaucrats are stupid and public officials short-sighted. Only the clever bravado of a solitary hero, or at most a small team, will make a difference in resolving the grand crisis at hand. This rule of contemporary storytelling is so nearly universal that it has escaped much comment, because you never notice propaganda that you already agree with. In other words, the reflex is self-reinforcing. A left-leaning director may portray villainous oligarchs or corporations, while another filmmaker rails against government cabals. But while screaming at each other over which direction Big Brother may be coming from, they never seem to notice their common heritage and instinct 
suspicion of authority. Much in the way fish seldom comment on the existence of water. Indeed, one of the great ironies is that we all suckled suspicion of authority from every film and comic book and novel that we loved, and yet we tend to assume that we invented it, that only we and a few others share this deep-seated worry about authority, that our neighbors got their opinions from reflexive, sheep-like obedience to propaganda, but we attained ours through logical appraisal of the evidence. No, you did not invent suspicion of authority. You were raised by it. So that's not the end of the piece. That's just the end of the first section, but I'll stop there. The whole piece is called Our Favorite Cliché, A World Filled with Idiots by David Brin. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on en.padverb.com. So just distrusting authority without developing the habit of challenging your own biases, finding and challenging your own biases, you'd be better off just listening to authority in most cases you'd have a clearer, more accurate picture of the world. I think that's a point on which Sasha Alte and I would agree. What do you think? You can send feedback. My email address is kmo at padverb.com, or you can participate in our Telegram channel. You can find a link to that on the Padverb podcast page on en.padverb.com. All right, that brings us to the end. Thanks, as always, to the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sophia Saw. The Padverb podcast theme music was composed by Slava Borisov. All right, that's it for this episode. I'll be back one week from today. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.